Luke chapter 19, we're going to kind of pick up on a journey that Jesus is on. Jesus is heading towards his cross, and he is traveling through Israel and through these different towns, and he comes up to a town called Jericho, which you might have heard in the Old Testament or reading through the Bible. And Jesus approaches this town, and this is kind of where we're going to pick up because this is getting towards the end of Jesus's journey. This is towards the end where he is kind of zeroed in on his goal, which is the cross. And he is fixated on Jerusalem, and he's fixated on the cross. But before there, he's passing through all of these towns, as the writer Luke is giving us all these details. But first, I want to ask you, have you recently, you can recall, have you, has, has anyone ever let you down before? Anyone been let down, like, super hard recently? And it's like, like oh, man... I remember uh, just growing up and really having it kind of crammed in my head that when you do something, you need to say, like, whatever you say you're going to do, basically you need to do it, right? Anyone else kind of were raised, like, like put your money where your mouth is kind of thing, right? Like, like, uh, like counselors and, and, and like, uh, Teachers in my life are always like, Daniel, you need to be a man of your word, right? Parents are always saying that. You need to be a man of your word. Now, it, it's, it's one of these things that can be quite frustrating because people promise the mountains and the stars, right? But you can't, when you, when you basically promise, there's just people that promise way too much, you know? <laughs> I'm, that's, I probably lean on that. I'll say a little bit too much and then I have to like apologize later, you know? Anyone else? Maybe that's just me. But it's like, oh, I shouldn't have, you know, said I was going to give you both my cars. You know, that kind of thing. It's like that was a little bit too much that I could chew. But basically what I've kind of learned as I've grown up, guys, is you don't ever build expectation off of people's words. You build expectation off people's actions. You don't count on people's words because talk is cheap, right? People can promise you all of these things, and if you find yourself to be a person who is constantly let down by people every single day, it's because a lot of times I find myself, I have these expectations because I hear what people are saying and what they're promising, but, but I'm kind of the fool because their actions don't follow their words. Do you see what I'm saying there? I think we really get in trouble with this. But I want to talk about a guy in Luke chapter 19 and by the name of Zacchaeus. This is a guy who has got an incredible story. There's some incredible lessons that we're going to learn in this chapter. And Zacchaeus is basically a guy that's completely the worst kind of guy you'd ever want to deal with. But after Jesus is dealing with him, he's transformed. And basically that lesson, this is a guy that understands basically talk is cheap. Okay, so we're going to dive into this in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Starting in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by the name. Zacchaeus, he said, quickly come down. I must be a guest in your home today. 
Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Let's pray. Jesus, would you open our hearts? Jesus, you said you have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Father, would you just open our hearts to hear from your word tonight? Lord Jesus, speak through me. Help me to decrease. And may your presence ever increase in this room as we dwell in your presence and hear your word tonight. In Jesus' name. Everybody say it. Amen. Have you ever dealt with uh, the IRS before? <laughs> Hopefully not. It's like the worst ever. Um, but basically... Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Now, it's one thing for a guy to be a tax collector. And you, those of you that are familiar with the biblical stories and the Gospels, the tax collectors were absolutely despised throughout all the land because they were notorious for basically skimming off the top, basically robbing people and taking a little bit too much. All they had to do as far as their responsibilities go is collect a certain amount to, to give to Rome from de determined by the number of people that lived in their area, but they would always kind of fudge the numbers. Now, you can, you can be sure of this with Zacchaeus because the Bible says that he was wealthy. And as according to the expositors, no tax collector would ever be rich and wealthy. You don't make enough money. So when you're a tax collector and you're making a killing, right, you're walking around with all the chains and stuff and... You got the nice leather jacket, and, and you got the nice boots and stuff, and everyone's like, what, what are you doing on the weekends, right? That's Zacchaeus. There's no way he, ought, he should be making this much money, but it's so evident and it's so obvious. He is collecting too much, and he's robbing people. And this was notorious with the tax collector. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, but the Bible specifies that he is the chief tax collector, which means he is overseas and he's the boss of many other tax collectors. Certain theologians actually think that Matthew may have known Zacchaeus, Matthew the tax collector. Isn't that interesting? That he may have known of Zacchaeus' reputation because Matthew was an underling in that profession. So Zacchaeus is not only this thief, but he is a trainer of thieves, you see. He is a guy who's mastered this, this job of making it look right and putting white out on those numbers so, so they, make, they, they say what you want them to say. And so therefore he's becoming wealthy and the, the, uh, the man who's despised among everyone in the town, he was hated by the Hebrews. And so I kind of think about this. You know, I remember many times I'd do mission trips into Mexico and I would hang around these gigantic, beautiful cathedrals and stuff. You know what I'm talking about? And they're like wonderful, and, and there's like the plaza there, and then, and then this gigantic cathedral. You go inside, there's gold everywhere. There's these statues. It's beautiful. And then I remember being bothered and troubled because in these very small towns where these gigantic cathedrals 
are built up. You go outside and there's basically people living in cardboard boxes. The poverty is absolutely rampant. And any person there that just walks around, you start to just really get that feeling in your stomach. This is not right. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt like that, even about our own country? This is not right. There's people just benefiting and skimming off the top and, and you know, don't, don't let me get in the IRS or everything. But basically, you get the picture. But I want you to taste that, that taste in your mouth when you hear about Zacchaeus. Because he's a guy who's cheating everyone. And he's getting wealthy in a, in a very immoral way. But there's a key here that Zacchaeus, basically, even though he was wealthy, it's very clear in this passage that he is still not happy. Even though he had great wealth and he had all the lifestyle that he had been asked for, he was wealthy, but really, at the end of it, he still was not happy. He still didn't have meaning in his life because he was going out and searching for Jesus. This happens several times in the Gospels, doesn't it? Where people are like, I've lived a good life, Jesus, but what else must I do? You see, guys, sometimes the questions we ask expose what really is going on in our heart. Right? It's like, Jesus, I've done all these things, but I've been a good neighbor, you see. Or Jesus, I've, done, I've fulfilled all these laws, what else must I do? It reveals that you're not satisfied inside of yourself. And when you read through the Gospels, I want you to notice this. And when you're seeing Zacchaeus, he's like searching after Jesus, but there's this thing he, in his yearning, in his longing, it reveals that he's not satisfied. He doesn't have everything in life that he wants. So Jesus has chosen to do something very strategic. He has passed and kind of gone outside of the road on his way into Jericho. The only biblical evidence for Jesus to be in Jericho at all that we read is to meet this man, Zacchaeus. Imagine Jesus going out of his way to come to Edinburgh, Texas, just to meet you. Because that's what's going on here. Are y'all following me? So Jesus has chosen to go this path to encounter Zacchaeus for a reason. So there's a reason that Jesus is doing this. And I want you to pay very close attention because we're going to learn something from this. So what's going on? What's going on with Zacchaeus What's going on in his heart? What can we discern and pull from the text here? Jesus comes up. He says he, the crowd is following him. There's a scene going on. There's these people following and everyone can see him. And Zacchaeus is going out and other translations say that he sought to see Jesus, comma, who he was. Now that's interesting because it's one thing to be interested in about Jesus and kind of what he's talking about. But it's also a completely different thing to be interested in who he is as a person and what it means for him to be him. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Zacchaeus wasn't just like, oh, look, a celebrity's coming to town. Let me cancel my plans. He's actually searching. He's interested and he's seeking. He went out to seek Jesus and who he went out to seek who Jesus was. Do y'all see what I'm saying? There's already evidence that there's this yearning in this question about who Jesus is. Now, we, Jesus, at the end of this passage, gives us a very important bit of evidence. Jesus closes this off saying, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And this reveals something very evident. Zacchaeus is a man who is a sinner, and he is completely lost. Zacchaeus is a man who has lived his life as far as 
teaching a class on business and how to get rich quick, he's, he would be there all the way. <laughs> He'd get an A plus on that test, right? Zacchaeus is utterly and completely lost because there's this thing missing inside of him that he doesn't know how to satisfy. But there's these like, there's things about him that we would be interested in. Zacchaeus was curious. The dude couldn't see over the crowd, so he literally climbs a tree in order to see what was going on with Jesus. He obviously is a curious guy, right? I mean, goodness gracious, I would pay money for friends of mine that just are apathetic about Jesus. You know what I'm saying? For them to do something like that, to climb a tree to go see him. There's a curiosity behind his eyes. And he's searching for truth and he's searching for, for, this, for this Jesus. He's also apparently very determined. And then as we read on a little bit, we find that he's actually also very hospitable. This guy's curious. He's determined. And he's a great host because he has no problem ask, having Jesus come into his house. But even though he's all these things, he's still lost. Even though he's got a great life, guys, he's lost. He's completely lost. And when the Bible in this text here uses the word lost, I want you to understand what it means is not so much that, that Zacchaeus is doomed and there's no hope. But rather, Zacchaeus is lost, meaning he is in the incorrect place. That's what this means when the Bible is using the word lost. When something, another translation to use this is when something is lost, that means it has completely lost its value. If I have a watch here and it's a billion dollars and the mechanics inside are so messed up, it's completely broken. It is absolutely never going to work ever again. It's unrepairable. The value of this watch is lost. You see that? It's completely lost. It's unsalvageable. There's nothing you can do about it. But there's, there's this attitude with this. When someone and something is lost, the value at that moment is done for. It's kaput. It's gone. There's no value. And also there's this thing of this, this mindset of there, it is a misplaced thing. I'm lost. I have, where did, where's the meaning gone in my life? What do I do in my, for my future? What, do I, what does it mean to, to like be a human in today's world, right? What, is, what does my future hold? What are all these things, all of these typical things that we think about and worry about on a daily basis? But Zacchaeus is absolutely lost. Loss is this concept where he's absolutely in the wrong place. He's not where he should be. Now, I, my, guys, my wonderful parents are here. Yes. If you're having trouble, just look for the white people. Um, but they're here, and, and uh, I, I apologize to bring this story up because this is a terrible memory uh, for, for my mother. But I remember this story vividly. We, when I was a very, 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 very little boy, very, very young, my mother loved to take me shopping. We would go to the mall frequently, and apparently I was quite a good shopper because she'd buy me a Happy Meal, and, and I'd sit in my stroller, and she would push me all around the mall, and I just wouldn't make a sound, apparently. I would sit there, and I'd play with my Happy Meal, and the memory that I have, because I was like, what, three, four? I was super little. But I actually remember sticking my fingers in the McDonald's, like, French fry bag and, like, licking the salt off my fingers. And I would just content. We'd shop till we drop, you know, and all that. So, but I'm there. I'm in a stroller, and we're in the mall. She's shopping with one of her friends, and they're having a great time. 
and we're walking, and I'm in the stroller, and I'm like, we've knocked out, but at this time, I'm asleep. We go into this store, and she's looking around at, at different clothes, and my mother all of a sudden turns around and looks at the stroller, and I'm gone. I'm nowhere to be seen. And she looks up. Now, I want you to put yourself, and I apologize, Mother, because I'm a very detailed storyteller, so I'm having her relive this. But imagine looking up and seeing something like this. You come out of the store, your child, the person that you love more than anything in the world, the child that you are raising is not in the stroller. You walk out of the store to see where is my boy, and you see just people walking around and nowhere to be seen. And that fear starts to swell up with inside you. Do I scream and say, where's my boy? Do I shout? Do I get everyone's attention? you frantically looking around. You're, you're, any of these people could have, you see this, this nightmare. And I'm not a parent. I don't understand this. But parents, that, that's a terrifying thing, isn't it? And so I don't know what she did. But she looked around, she went to the next door and found me down on the floor, crouched on my hands and knees playing with the toy, because we just passed the toy store. <laughs> okay? So we pass this. I'm sitting in the stroller, I'm watching the toys go by, and then we go in the next one, and I'm going, that looks really fun, and I'm crawling out, and I went around the corner where you're not going to find me without a panic attack or two, right? So the question I want to ask you guys is this. When someone is lost, who was the person that really suffered more? Me or my mother? My mother. My mother was the one that suffered. I was having a grand old time playing with some little toy in my hands as a four-year-old, right? Now, guys, let me ask you this. How do you think God feels when he's walking through life with you and he's holding your hand and you're walking through, and you're, he's teaching you things as you go. He's showing you amazing things. And all of a sudden, something catches your eye and turns you away from him. And all of a sudden, he turns you around, and you're gone. Guys, sin separates you. Not from a father who's distant, a, a, a God powerhouse who's distant, but a father who tenderly loves you and who raised you and who's known you since you were born. And he turns around, and that sin catches our eye. And we rip away, and we look and see these other things that are going to satisfy us quicker and sooner. God turns around, it's almost, and he says, my child is gone. Guys, I want you to feel this, because that feeling of fear and terror and, and grief and suffering is what God feels. When he turns around to see his, you and me, his precious child, he, he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything about you, more about you than you would ever dream to know about yourself. He knows that about you. And to see us turn away, it is a parent gut-wrenching feeling that the Lord our God feels. Are you all with me? Yeah. Yeah. What is it like? Who really suffers when someone is lost? God is the one who suffers. When Zacchaeus decides to fill his life with wealth, riches, and stealing, and, and theft, and basically being a rogue, the one who suffers is the Lord himself. Guys, what I'm saying is the tragedy of a lost soul is that God is the one who was robbed. I want you to think about your friends that don't know Jesus. I want you to think about the friends that we might have back in Huntsville, the friends that we have in our classrooms, the friends, the co-workers that we have at work, 
when we see them and we know deep down they're lost, they're missing. Guys, I feel like what the Lord is saying is the very next thought in our mind is the Lord is the one who is missing you. The Lord of heaven and earth, the Father of all creation, is looking for you, and you're lost. Does that make sense? Zacchaeus was lost. The tragedy of this lostness in him is that God is the one who is really suffering. But then Jesus comes marching into Jericho. Now, this incredible thing happens. Jesus comes up, sees Zacchaeus in a tree, and see, again, you have to remember, Jesus, the Son, Father, the Father in the Trinity is the one who has lost his children. He, that's the sheep that has gone astray. God is a loving Father that is yearning for his children to return home. But follow me here. Jesus is the Son of the Father whose job is to go searching for that missing son, that missing child. You'll follow me? That's what Jesus' job, that's what his role is within the Trinity. So Jesus walking into Jericho, you have to see him there. You have to follow Jesus there. Because this is the son who came to seek and save that which was lost. And Jesus walking into town, you can see his eyes darting in every which direction to looking who here is going to get saved today. Who here is willing to approach me? And his eyes going back and forth. Who here is lost and who is ready to be found? And he sets his eyes on Zacchaeus sitting in a tree. <laughs> and so he sees Zacchaeus, and Jesus does the most un... How should I say this? He does the most rude and disrespectful thing of all time. He invites himself over for dinner. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but Mama always taught me it is always rude and disrespectful to invite yourself over, and it's always like that strange person, you know, it's like, and it's also, it's kind of sad, because we're jerks all the times, we don't invite people that should be invited, you know what I'm saying, sometimes it's totally us, but it's like, hey, can I come, it's like, well, I didn't ask you, I didn't, you know, it's like, it's like we're, we're like such jerks, but Jesus decides to kind of, you know, it, again, we say this every week, but it's kind of true, this is another example of Jesus acting as though he's God or something, He's like, hey, you, I'm coming over to your house for dinner. Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I must come to your house for dinner tonight. He invites himself over like it's no problem. And so I want to bring out a very interesting parallel here. You know how the New Testament will parallel with stuff in the Old Testament? Guys, don't you find it interesting that Jesus is invading Zacchaeus' home in a town called Jericho? Because about 1,500 years before, God was leading Joshua into the land of Canaan. And Joshua's orders was to invade. And so what happens in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua at the very beginning? Joshua takes the people of Israel. They march up to Jericho. And God gives them strict orders. March around Jericho seven times blowing your trumpets. Fascinating story. They're marching around Jericho. They're blowing the trumpets. No one, not, not a sword has been swung. No shield has been raised. They're literally marching around the walls of this city, blowing their trumpets. And on the seventh day, the trumpets blow and the walls of Jericho come crashing down. Y'all, maybe some of y'all have heard the story. Guys, this is, every time I read the Old Testament, I've read the Old Testament a few times now. And every time I get to this story, I really start to, I start to think Really hard, because 
the question for me is why, like most people are like, why is God invading the Canaanites? That's immediately the first question that people might raise. Why does God think himself like worthy to barge in on these people's land and wipe them out and say, get out of the land of Canaan. I am moving my own people in there. But you see, I read this passage and I ask a different question. My question is this. What good reason do you have when God, the creator of the cosmos, that spoke the universes into existence with a word, comes marching on your front doorstep and says, I want this land. My question is, why would you not surrender to him? Think about it. What good reason do you have to not surrender? And think about the mercy of God for the people of Israel to march seven times, seven days around in circles around Jericho for seven whole days. Guys, that's not brutality. That's mercy. God is giving Jericho seven whole days to give up and surrender without losing a life. But why? Because we love our stuff. We love our foreign gods. Guys, whenever God invades, it's not ever because he's this tyrannical God that just doesn't like these people and he wants them removed. When God invades, it's because he loves ugly people that worship detestable gods and have detestable practices. And he's a loving father that wants to fix that. Are y'all with me tonight? Jericho got bombarded and invaded by God. And in the exact same way, Jesus, 1,500 years later, marching into Jericho, and he does the exact same thing. Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house for dinner tonight. I am letting myself in. Now the question about the Old Testament is the same question for Jesus in the New Testament. What gives Jesus the right to barge in in this man's house? Y'all see what I'm saying? What gives Jesus the right? Samuel's Wimmer, and a phenomenal missionary, if you find any biographies about Samuel's Wimmer, buy them. But he led the... Uh, the Presbyterian revival mission movement to the Arab world. And he has written some wonderful books, a book I've read called The Solitary Throne. Samuel Zwimmer is an got an incredible story in one of his books that my friend tells me about. And he is speaking to a Muslim and he's trying to uh, teach about what Jesus is doing and, and about who Jesus is. And he's preaching to this Muslim man. And the Muslim is sitting here and he's going, and, and basically they're going over the story of Zacchaeus. And the preacher is saying, teaching him the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus inviting himself into the home. And the Muslim man says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to understand, I'm from an Eastern culture here. And there's no way, there is absolutely no way that a prophet, a teacher of, the, of God, or a prophet of God would ever do something so rude and invite himself into someone else's house. There's no way. And they basically get in a fight about that. The Muslim man is saying, no. And, and the guy's like saying, well, Jesus did it. He's, he invited himself in. But he's like, I, this is troubling to me. I don't think I can read the Bible. I don't think I can take this seriously because no prophet 
would ever do such a rude thing and invite himself. The only person who has the authority to invite themselves into a person's home is if that person was God. Oh, if that person was God. You see, God is the only one that has the right to do such a thing. And the connection between who Jesus truly was was finally connected in this man's mind. That Jesus, when he is saying, I'm coming over to your house for dinner, he's saying, I have the authority because I am God. I and the Father are one. Do you follow me there? Jesus has the authority to invite himself into your life. Are y'all with me? That's really crazy. Now, I want to be clear here because this doesn't mean... Jesus saying, behold, I stand at the door and I blow your door down and then you have no choice. That's not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying at all. Like a Jesus-shaped hole in your door and you couldn't do anything about it. But Jesus, is he has the authority to stand in front of you and say, you are living a stupid, selfish life and you need to stop it. Right? Jesus has the authority to get in your way and say, these things are going to kill you. You need to stop doing those things. Because he's a loving father that wants the highest good for you. Y'all with me? Jesus has the authority not only because of who he is and his intrinsic value and his personhood, but because Jesus also had a mission. And his mission was to save. Jesus said this, salvation has come to this house today. And this is an incredible thing. Zacchaeus gets down from the tree and walking into this house, walking into this room, into his house and having dinner, something happened. Something went down inside that house that, that we don't know exactly the conversation. It could have been several hours worth of time. But when, G, when Zacchaeus walked in that room and then came out of that room, he was a completely different person. Zacchaeus walked in this room with Jesus. When he walked in there, his before his Zacchaeus's passion was to get everything he could. But when he walked out, his passion was to give everything he could. After his encounter with Jesus, before he walked in, he was mastered by his own greed. He was mastered by the the world and all of these things. But after his encounter with Jesus, he was mastered by grace. Before he entered Zacchaeus's his his major possession was really himself. He was possessed with his wants and his desires, but after he left the presence of Jesus, he was possessed by righteousness. Everything about his being was changed completely. Zacchaeus was completely lost, but after his encounter with Jesus, he walked out of that room a saved man. Now I want to echo what we talked about when we first started tonight, that Zacchaeus is this man who walks up, and we know this is true, that talk is cheap, right? You can say a whole lot of stuff, but what truly matters, guys, in your, in your life and in my life is how have you changed? What has Jesus done in your life that has caused you to change permanently? We just heard two wonderful testimonies right up here before we started about how I met Jesus and I wasn't the same again. Have you ever thought about your life and how Jesus has drastically changed you? Because I want us to be careful, RGV Chi Alpha, because we can say a lot of stuff, but it's not going to mean anything 
unless we're truly changed in our hearts, right? Guys, what I'm trying to say to you guys tonight is this. Salvation is not just changed words. Salvation is a changed life. Salvation is not just finding the right things to say. Now, I'm not slamming churches, but, but this is an interesting thing. We, we, we come to a time today where we think that repeating after a person praying is going to solve all the things. Now, that's not to say that one prayer can change your life and, you, and it start a journey with Jesus. But I think you see what I'm saying. We, in our culture today, in our social media culture, where everything is instant gratification, everything that you could ever want, you've got it in a, in a split of a second. And we kind of treat church the exact same way, don't we? That whatever, I just, man, I just wish the service was just a lot shorter <laughs> so we can go eat. I have to confess, I'm not like that sometimes. But we live in a culture that's instant gratification, and we, and, and goodness gracious, if I could preach a 45-minute sermon on don't say stupid things on Facebook. <laughs> that's a sermon that could last a long, long, long time. Because there's just lots of evidence to go from. Of just attacking Facebook like you're going to solve the next presidential election. Come on, people. Come on, people. Be smart. Please, for the love of Jesus, help us, Lord. Uh, <laughs> salvation is not, guys, like, but you see my point. We get on social media, it's just words. Don't ever put weight and expectation behind a person just by their words. Yeah. We need to be a people that does what we say we're going to do. Last week, I talked about how we're going to ask the Lord to, to give Chi Alpha RGV 50 small groups. Y'all remember that last week? We're seeking the Lord for 50 small groups. Because we're going to watch the Lord change the Rio Grande Valley from this little group right here. Praise the Lord. It's going to be awesome. But guys, what this comes, this, is, this talk is cheap. We can say it, you see. But it's not going to mean anything until our hearts inwardly are changed. Unless there's an inward change here, there's never going to be a change out here. Y'all see what I'm saying? Jessica's going to come back, and we're going to close with this. Ecclesiastes makes this point better than I ever could. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4 through 7 says this. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. Is that not what we're talking about? <laughs> when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Listen to this, verse 7. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Talk is cheap, guys. Talk is cheap. When Jesus barges into your life, when he invites himself over to your house, into the living room of your heart, and he's looking around your life saying, you know what? We got to we got to remodel this place. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do they call those people? Home decorators? It's like a home decorator, but for your life and for your heart. Jesus comes in and he's going to start changing some things around. 
And the moment, guys, we find that shiny thing or that, that thing in our life that distracts us, the thing in our life that we love more than anything else, it takes us from, from the, not just from the hands of a God who's powerful, but from the hands of a Father who deeply loves you and who's searching like mad to find you again.